On October 19, 1814, friends of Joanna Southcott gathered around her bedside. The 64-year-old was expecting, and today was supposed to be the day. The doctors she'd consulted with were divided on the issue. Joanna certainly looked pregnant, but the idea seemed impossible. She'd gone through menopause and even claimed to be a virgin. But Joanna knew she'd been blessed with the child. The Holy Spirit had told her so. As she laid back in bed and closed her eyes, Joanna could feel her son inside her womb. Baby Shiloh, a baby born of God and destined to shepherd faithful Christians to paradise. Joanna knew she had to keep the faith. For years she'd heard the voice of God and almost everything he'd told her had come true. Reassured once more, she opened her eyes and raised herself up. Then Joanna gasped as a painful spasm in her abdomen brought her back down onto the sheets. Her friends leaned closer with awed anticipation. Was it finally time? Would Joanna soon bring forth the Son of God? Joanna put her hands together and prayed. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Cults for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Last week, we explored the predictions of self-proclaimed Christian prophet Joanna Southcott. We covered Joanna's early life in England and how she gained a large following through her self-published religious writings in the early 1800s. This week, we'll talk about the final years of Joanna's life and her remarkable claims that she was pregnant with the child of God. We'll also delve into the many movements which sought to keep Joanna's legacy alive after her death. By 1814, 64-year-old Joanna Southcott was living a life she never dared to dream of. In the past 12 years, she'd gone from an ordinary domestic servant to a religious writer with tens of thousands of supporters. Fans of her work believed that Joanna heard the voice of God and that he revealed his word to the world through her writings. They expected Joanna to show them the path to eternal salvation and to warn humanity when the end of days approached. In March of 1814, Joanna delivered on their every expectation. That month, she claimed she heard the voice of the Holy Spirit once again. It told her that she was pregnant with the Lord's child. Like the Virgin Mary before her, Joanna would be the vessel for a second immaculate conception. Joanna believed her baby would be the Christian Messiah, sent to earth to lead the faithful through the apocalypse. She called him Shiloh, citing a verse from Genesis which, in one translation, reads... The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. This verse has been the subject of debate amongst biblical scholars for centuries. 
One common modern interpretation is that the Shiloh in this case refers to Jesus. Thus, the verse can be seen as an early prediction of the original virgin birth. But that's not the only interpretation. And even in Joanna's time, opinion was divided. Many believed that the so-called Shiloh had not yet arrived on earth. Other self-proclaimed Christian prophets, like Richard Brothers 20 years before, announced that they were the biblical Shiloh. As for Joanna, she believed the verse meant that Shiloh would be born in the years before the apocalypse and would then rise up to save the virtuous. Accordingly, Joanna published a book announcing the news to her followers. Her latest doomsday predictions were by far her most incendiary. In the past, she'd faced harsh criticism just for predicting the beginning of a war or the imminent death of a bishop. Now she was essentially proclaiming herself a new saint. If Joanna's claims were to be believed, it would make her as significant to the Christian faith as Jesus' mother, Mary. Despite the gravity of what she was claiming, Joanna's supporters reacted to her announcement with exuberance. They started sending Joanna opulent gifts for the baby, including an ornate candle and expensive Bibles. But at the same time, critics from all over England denounced her as a heretic. London newspapers were littered with insulting articles and cartoons. In one drawing, a pregnant Joanna is portrayed as hideous while she's mocked by townsfolk. The illustrated bystanders called Joanna a blasphemous old hag, among other insults. The backlash against Joanna wasn't restricted to print either. In the village of Horbury, nearly 200 miles away, people burned and shot effigies of her for three nights straight. It was a startling display of vitriol that showcased the way violent mob mentality can take a crowd over almost spontaneously. This is especially true when their anger is directed at someone they view as a heretic. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Studies focused on the social dynamics of group violence have found that people viewed as outsiders by a group were more likely to be subject to physical brutality without restraint. Though the people of Horbury were likely only dimly aware of Joanna through the newspapers, dozens of townsfolk harbored a violent animosity towards her. A paper published by the Australian Institute of Criminology read, Mob rule is precisely about lack of restraint, the unbridled use of force against an opponent. This is because the transformation into the mob precludes introspection, opening the door to unrestrained violence instead. Public opinion was inflamed further a few months later, after Joanna was examined by no less than nine doctors. Six of them said that her physical symptoms were consistent with pregnancy. They all acknowledged that it was unlikely for a woman of Joanna's age to give birth. But at least one prominent surgeon, Dr. Reese, was confident that she really was pregnant. The news spread across England like wildfire. The recognition and possibly even the controversy may have excited Joanna. For years, she'd been doing all she could to get the Church of England's attention. 
But now, Joanna's new notoriety seemed to alarm her. She sent out warnings to her followers not to show her public support. Over the past few years, she distributed thousands of seals for her followers to use to mark their letters. By doing so, they identified themselves as her acolytes. Now, fearing for their safety, Joanna warned them to stop using the seals until after Shiloh was born. Meanwhile, she did her best to meet her critics head-on in her writings. She cherry-picked countless biblical passages heralding the coming apocalypse and swore up and down that her prophecies had been guided by God. Still, it's possible she felt some doubt, or at least wanted to appear humble. Whatever the reason, Joanna discouraged her followers from sending any more gifts to baby Shiloh. She also made an inventory of what she'd already received. Then she promised she would send everything back to its original centers if it turned out that she was deceived into believing in the pregnancy. If she was plagued by doubts, they likely intensified as the months passed. There were some reports that she expected the baby in July, but the date came and passed with no news. Then she announced that she'd have the baby on October 19, 1814. Joanna and her supporters waited eagerly for the appointed day. To keep her and the child healthy, she stayed indoors and saw few visitors. Then, as the night passed, Joanna's followers reported that she went into a deep trance. It's unknown exactly what Joanna experienced, but her claims about her spiritual visions had gradually grown more intense in recent months. On a previous occasion, she claimed to have fallen into an ecstatic state where she felt surrounded by angels. On this night, however, Joanna had no angelic visions, and despite her trance-like state, she didn't end up giving birth. The next day, Joanna must have been disappointed, but she and her followers still remained committed to the cause. And soon, Joanna heard from the Spirit once again. This time, it reiterated the prophecy about Shiloh's imminent birth, but also commanded her to marry so that Shiloh could have a foster father, like Jesus had Joseph. This was possibly the event that was most out of character for Joanna. She'd remained unmarried her whole life, by her account spurning at least a couple legitimate proposals when she was younger. Even when she'd heard from the Spirit that she was pregnant earlier in the year, she hadn't mentioned anything about getting married. But by November of 1814, apparently her mind had suddenly changed. In the middle of that month, 64-year-old Joanna Southcott married a man named John Smith in a private ceremony. He was one of her followers and seemed to be a fairly straight-laced gentleman. The two agreed from the start that if the baby was not born, then the marriage would be annulled. The agreement corresponded with some sudden misgivings on Joanna's part. Soon after the wedding, she spoke to her closest friends in confidence. During the conversation, she told them, You've sometimes heard me say that I doubted my inspirations, but you would never let me despair. Now it all appears delusion. If the quote was sincere, Joanna must have been crushed. She had to face the possibility that she dedicated the past decade of her life to an illusion. Each passing day that Joanna failed to give birth, her outlook grew dimmer. In December, she started to get sick. She died on December 27th, two days after Christmas, 1814. 
There were some reports that Joanna denounced her movement and the prophecies about Shiloh in the moments before her death. But the doctor who attended to her cast doubt on those claims. After all, the people of England had rabidly followed Joanna's story throughout 1814, and there were regular news stories about her. People even started writing biographical pamphlets about her to satisfy public curiosity. As a result, rumors and gossip proliferated as the actual news grew thinner and thinner. If Joanna did renounce her beliefs on her deathbed, it likely would have been in a fit of fever and delirium, not as a calm, reasoned statement. Either way, after her death, her followers certainly didn't behave as though she'd recanted her beliefs. For days following her passing, Joanna's supporters kept her body warm and refused to turn it over to authorities. They believed she might have been in some kind of a deep trance. Some thought she would rise from the dead. Finally, four days after she died, her followers let doctors perform an autopsy. A full 15 doctors examined her body. None of them found anything suggesting a definitive cause of death. And, unsurprisingly, there was no evidence of pregnancy. They did find what was called dropsy, now known as edema, a condition caused by an excess of fluid collecting in the body. This may have contributed to the false pregnancy, or explained in some part why Joanna felt her belly growing over the previous months. The lack of other conclusive findings was probably due to the limited medical knowledge of the time. But in retrospect, some believe that Joanna could have had uterine cancer. The disease may have caused other symptoms similar to pregnancy. But to most of her followers, the question wasn't a medical one. It was a matter of faith. And against all odds, the movement that Joanna started didn't just disappear after her death. It grew. Coming up, Joanna's followers transform her message and keep her legacy alive. Now back to the story. On December 27, 1814, Joanna Southcott, a Christian religious leader with thousands of followers in England, died. Four months before her death, the 64-year-old had claimed that she would give birth to a second messiah named Shiloh. After she passed away, Joanna's supporters struggled to pick up the pieces and keep her movement alive. In her absence, all her followers had to guide them were her extensive writings. Of course, Joanna had also left behind a mysterious sealed box of prophecies. She claimed that the predictions would lead humanity to salvation, but that the box couldn't be opened except by the 24 bishops of the Church of England. Joanna's remaining supporters ceded to her wishes. But some believed that it was exactly because the church had ignored Joanna's prophecies that Shiloh's birth was delayed by God in the first place. Others began to wonder if the pregnancy and Shiloh were meant to be taken as metaphors. Naturally, some of Joanna's followers abandoned the cause after she died. Her funeral was a small affair, and not many people attended. And even in death, she didn't get the acknowledgement of the church she sought for so many years. But her legacy wasn't quite forgotten. Joanna's supporters spun off into numerous factions over the next century. One of the most successful people to capitalize on Joanna's message was George Turner. He was a former dedicated follower who Joanna had blessed. She said she believed his writings were touched by God the same way hers were. 
After Joanna died, Turner wrote several religious pamphlets actively touting the endorsement she'd given him before she died. Turner also claimed that Shiloh had been transported out of Joanna's womb by God before she passed on. He believed Shiloh would return to earth at a later time to lead the chosen into paradise. The idea appealed to the followers who had remained faithful to Joanna. Using his pamphlets, Turner succeeded in rallying a majority of Joanna's remaining support to his cause. His teachings were considerably more radical than Joanna's. Seizing on the indignation many followers felt after the church ignored Joanna for much of her life, he preached an anti-establishment, apocalyptic message. He claimed that Shiloh would bring about a massive earthquake, destroying the treasury, heretical churches, and anything else Turner associated with authority. His movement was short-lived, however. After spending some time at a mental institution, Turner died in 1821, splintering Joanna's base even more. He was succeeded by a man named John Rowe, who joined the movement a year before. Rowe's new leadership role upset some of Joanna's older followers, who felt he didn't have the authority to carry on her message. But his leadership excited many others. Rowe claimed to experience divine visions, much like Joanna's. He renamed the group the Christian Israelites Church and made even greater changes to the organization than Turner had. Rowe believed that descendants of God's chosen people would rise up, led by the church, and bask in God's favor. He claimed that the group should seek to unite the so-called lost tribes of Israel for that purpose. All of this was a far cry from what Joanna preached. Though she had embraced a somewhat apocalyptic philosophy, she'd taken care to tailor most of what she said to fit within the mainstream church's teachings. Rowe, on the other hand, sought to reshape the organization in his own image as much as possible. Like Joanna, he connected Shiloh's return with the apocalypse, but his belief in the lost tribes of Israel set him apart and separated his supporters further from the church. Already primed with resentment for authority, many group members embraced Rowe's take. After all, Turner had warned them repeatedly of the divine punishment that would soon come to non-believers. Rowe took Turner's fiery rhetoric and refocused it into a more coherent, disciplined dogma. Whereas Joanna often encouraged her followers to respect the Church of England's authority, Rowe wanted them to help create a more distinctive alternative. To do so, Rowe's first priority became to establish rigid rules for his flock. His church was composed of God's chosen people, and he wanted them to act like it. Still claiming to be inspired by holy visions of his own, Rowe made the men in the group wear large hats and conservative clothing. They were also expected to grow long beards and give up smoking and drinking. Women were subjected to similarly rigid dress codes and moral rules. Everyone was encouraged to go on their own missions, traveling throughout the country to recruit new members. Rowe led by example, traveling far and tailoring his message to appeal to whatever audience he was in front of. His discipline and passionate evangelizing led to unprecedented growth for the Israelites. By 1829, Rowe managed to build a compound in central England large enough to house 500 of his followers. As a part of their worship, they regularly gathered in white robes and chanted or sang hymns. 
Two years later, however, the compound was abandoned. In 1831, Rowe was accused of sexually abusing several young women who'd been assigned to be his servants. Here, we can see a major distinction between Joanna's cult of readers and Rowe's more typical organization, which focused on rigidly controlling his followers' lives. Dr. Yanya Lalich studied the sexual exploitation of women in cults. She writes, In many cults, the sexuality and sex lives of members are controlled, manipulated, and exploited. Cult leaders seem to realize rather quickly that a great source of power can be found in the sexual control of their followers. This power is abused by the leader to elevate themselves in any way possible, often utilizing their members' bodies to gain money, sexual gratification, or fame. While Joanna seemed most interested in institutional validation from the Church of England, Rowe was only interested in exercising power over others. He used the last vestiges of his power at the compound to escape the accusations. A mock trial was held in the complex, and Rowe was found innocent. But most of his followers knew he was guilty. Some of his wealthiest backers abandoned him, and Rowe fled the compound. Unfortunately, Rowe had already spread his message far and wide. Relying on his followers in other parts of the country, some of whom hadn't heard about the scandal, he was able to rebound. He soon built a second compound 50 miles away. The second compound was considerably less populated than the first, however. Rowe adapted by directing his remaining resources back to missionary expansion. In 1839, 57-year-old Rowe even sent some missionaries to Australia and gained a significant following there. At its peak, Rowe was estimated to have over 500 registered members of his sect in Melbourne alone. From there, Rowe sent missionaries to North America, establishing small groups of followers in a couple of cities in the United States. He continued to lead the organization for decades. Eventually, he amassed 6,000 believers on three continents. There were sporadic rumors that Rowe had continued to sexually abuse his followers, but he was never arrested or convicted of any more crimes before his death in 1863. As usual, the loss of a charismatic leader spelled a major realignment for the movement. In America, the disparate followers spun off and became new sects. By that point, the only thing most of them had in common was a general reverence for Joanna Southcott and a belief that a Christian apocalypse would come soon. In Australia, the Christian Israelites stuck closer to Rowe's message, though their numbers gradually shrank. Back in England, several other prophets tried to take up the mantle of Roe over the next few decades with varying degrees of success. It wasn't until 1919 that Joanna's movement got its next big reinvention. That year, 53-year-old Mabel Baltrup announced that she was the Shiloh Joanna had promised. At first, Mabel seemed an unlikely successor to the passionate Turner and the ambitious Roe. She was a well-off widow, more interested in creating a quiet and polite upper-class community than an international network of missionaries. But she was more similar to Joanna Southcott than either Turner or Roe. Like Joanna, she'd been an ordinary Christian woman until middle age, when she was suddenly struck by a revelation, leading her to claim a direct connection to God. 
Her revelations were likely a direct result of her husband's death years before. After his passing, Mabel had a mental breakdown and was committed to a mental institution. She was released some time later and began reviewing religious books for magazines. That was how 48-year-old Mabel came across the writings of Joanna Southcott in 1914. Mabel possibly sympathized with Joanna. She felt they were both the same kind of chaste and modest woman, and both sought to save the world. Five years later, in 1919, Mabel committed to her new role entirely and took on the name Octavia. She began telling her friends that she was Joanna's spiritual daughter, the Shiloh, who would lead the faithful to paradise. But where Joanna had actively sought the approval of the male higher-ups in the church, Mabel first spread her message to a community of fellow widows in the town of Bedford, England. She found her particular message resonated more among fellow older single women. Like Joanna, Turner, and Roe before her, Mabel told her converts that the apocalypse was soon to come. But rather than try and whip up a rebellious spirit in her friends like Turner had done, or to spread the message of salvation as far as possible like Roe, Mabel preferred to quietly wait for the end of days. She declared that Bedford, England was the center of the world and the original site of the Garden of Eden. In Mabel's view, she and her supporters could best serve God by staying near paradise, staying celibate, and having fancy dinner parties. Apparently, the message was attractive to the upper-class widows of Bedford. They pooled their resources together to build several massive houses in the town. They welcomed mostly women to their ranks. Lower-class members were relegated to the role of servants for the richer followers. In addition to preaching a message of sisterhood, Mabel placed extreme emphasis on the importance of etiquette. One of her first actions as leader of the new community was to write what she called the Manners Paper. This document laid out expectations of proper behavior for her followers. It demanded that people stop eating their toast too loudly. It also included detailed instructions on how to set the table depending on the season, and warnings to be quiet when going in and out of the bedrooms. There were never-ending suggestions after that. Mabel wrote about the best day to buy bread and how to eat asparagus without using cutlery. Obsessing over the intricacies of etiquette was a far cry from waiting for a post-menopausal woman to birth the coming Messiah. But for Mabel, manners were as important as miracles. She may have felt that strict rules were the best way to ensure all the members treated each other fairly and with respect. But likely, she had other motivations as well. It's possible Mabel clung to rules because they gave her the sense of control she needed. Psychotherapist Amy Morin states that controlling people like Mabel often impose their own obsessions onto others to avoid dealing with their issues directly. She writes, most control freaks believe they know what's best for everyone and try to convince other people to do things their way. Since control freaks believe success stems solely from talent and effort, they lack compassion for those who struggle. Mabel's rules were exacting, but she wasn't completely without sympathy for her followers. As someone who'd struggled with mental illness before, she knew the value of letting one's emotions out. 
With this in mind, she required regular confessions from the other members of the community. The sessions were designed to quell any simmering disagreements between the followers and to allow them to speak openly about their feelings. With a framework of emotional openness and a rigid etiquette plan in place, Mabel then set about heralding the apocalypse. She believed that the day of reckoning would come once the box of Joanna Southcott's prophecies was opened by the bishops of the Church of England. Thus, Mabel had her high society friends begin an endless letter-writing campaign. Day in and day out, they flooded the mailboxes of various members of the church, begging their bishops to come to Bedford and open the box. There was just one small problem with the enterprise. Mabel didn't actually have the box. Coming up, Mabel claims extraordinary new powers and finds a new way to pressure the church into opening Joanna's box. Now the conclusion to the story. In 1919, 53-year-old Mabel Baltrup announced to the world that she was the long-lost spiritual daughter of Prophet Joanna Southcott. Mabel formed a small community of wealthy widows in Bedford, England, where the ladies waited for Armageddon. The group believed that the end of days would be ushered in once the 24 bishops of the Church of England opened a sealed box of Joanna's prophecies. They commenced a feverish letter-writing campaign to convince the church to open the box. But the request was complicated by the fact that Mabel's society didn't have the legendary box at all. According to rumors encouraged by Mabel, it had been covertly passed along between Joanna's followers for years after the prophet died. The current location of the box was therefore absolutely secret, but Mabel insisted that it existed and contained Joanna's most revealing predictions about the imminent Armageddon. Ultimately, the location of Joanna's prophecies didn't end up being important because for the most part, the letter-writing campaign received exactly the response Joanna had endured throughout her life. Quiet indifference. Occasionally, a church leader would deign to respond with a polite refusal. Despite this, Mabel wasn't dismayed. She was confident she would be able to convince the church to open the box eventually. According to her, she had plenty of time to wait. This was because, as the partially divine daughter of God and Joanna Southcott, Mabel claimed to be immortal. In addition, she told her followers that she had the holy power to heal disease. Because of these claims, Mabel's followers began calling themselves the Panacea Society. Soon after, Mabel elaborated on her claims, telling society members that she could heal any ailment using just her breath. To that end, she regularly breathed and prayed over pitchers of tap water to infuse the water with her essence. The water was then ingested or else poured on the site of any follower who got sick. Amazingly, the society members used the water often and seemed to be absolutely convinced that it was effective. This was likely due to the placebo effect, the same medical phenomenon that faith healers rely on. The placebo effect can cause a drug or treatment that has no medicinal properties to appear to heal an individual due to the patient's belief in that treatment. The effects of placebos can be powerful, 
even contributing to pain management, better sleep, and the alleviating of cancer symptoms. Nicholas Humphrey, a neuropsychologist, writes, How common are placebo effects? The surprising truth seems to be that they are everywhere. The scientific evidence has been accumulating from the burgeoning research on alternative medicine and faith healing. Thus, the Panacea Society was able to use the strong faith of its members to make Mabel's supposed healing powers somewhat of a reality. Of course, there are limits to the placebo effect, and it's definitely not consistent. But it would explain why members used the water so regularly, and why the community was absolutely convinced it really was a miracle cure. As time went on, the supposed divine power of the water increased. It was soon splashed on buildings to protect them from damage. Eventually, it was also sprinkled on membership cards carried by the Panaceans. Those holding the infused cards were supposed to be protected by God's grace, in the same way holy water is said to protect against evil in other Christian denominations. Where the letter-writing campaign had stagnated, the holy water and Mabel's panacea claims attracted a lot more attention. Word soon spread about her miracle cure, and soon people outside of the society were clamoring for the water. In response, the society developed a new healing method that would be more accessible to those who needed it. The Panaceans began holding regular ceremonies where Mabel prayed and breathed over rolls of linen. The linen was then cut into small squares and sent by mail to whoever asked for it, free of charge. The gift came with some instructions, telling the recipient to soak the cloth in water and pray over it before applying it to their ailment. The venture was a success, and thousands of people eventually mailed in requesting a panacea. Society members capitalized on the publicity by revitalizing their letter-writing enterprise. Now they began sending out leaflets and petitions to the public as well, trying to garner more support for their cause. They even ran ads on the sides of buses throughout England, demanding the bishops open the box. Though the church continued to ignore their pleas, their efforts did increase public interest in Joanna's prophecies. In 1927, a man named Harry Price claimed to have found the elusive box. Price was a famous magician and debunker of paranormal phenomena. He regularly investigated claims made by high-profile psychics and mediums to expose them as frauds. That year, he apparently turned his sights toward Joanna. He didn't disclose how he'd gotten the box, only saying that it had been delivered anonymously to his office. According to Price, the sender claimed he got the box from an acquaintance who'd been safeguarding the box for years. At a public event in Westminster on July 11th, Price unveiled a foot-long walnut box bound by two steel strips. Like the Panacea Society, he tried and failed to convince the Church of England bishops to join him for the unveiling. But he did manage to convince one church leader, the Bishop of Grantham, to attend. More than a century later, the prophecies of Joanna Southcott were about to be revealed. In a packed community hall, Price pried open the box to cheers and applause. Then, silence. There were no earth-shattering revelations inside, nor prophecies that would usher in Armageddon. Instead, the box only contained a couple of old books, a lottery ticket, a purse, and a horse pistol. 
The Panacea Society immediately responded by claiming that the box Price opened wasn't genuine. According to them, the true box would have been larger and heavier because of the volume of Joanna's writings. Considering the anonymous source Price claimed to have received the box from, their argument seemed believable. Price had a record of being forthright and sincerely attempting to investigate paranormal claims, but he wasn't above pulling a stunt for publicity. On the other hand, the Panacea Society still refused to say where the true box was at the time, or even exactly what it might look like. Even so, the Society's influence continued to spread. By the early 1930s, nearly 70 people were living in the Bedford community, composed mostly of stately manors purchased by the richest members. The centerpiece of it all was the Ark, a massive home with enough rooms for all 24 church bishops to sleep in at once, if they ever decided to come visit. The members largely carried on in the same way they always had for the next several years. They never gave up hope that one day Joanna's box would be unsealed. Then, in 1934, Mabel suddenly died at the age of 68. The society members were shocked. They would believed she was immortal. And, just as Joanna's supporters had done a century before, Mabel's believers kept her body warm for four days. They believed she might rise up after three days, like Christ. Ultimately, they were disappointed. After four days, they were forced to let her go, and they buried her in a small ceremony in Bedford. After she was gone, most observers expected the Panaceans to die out. But over the years, the movement had persevered through the deaths of Joanna, Turner, and Rowe. And it continued without Mabel just the same. The remaining members of the society pulled their resources together and carried on quietly for decades. In 1957, they claimed to have finally obtained the legendary box of prophecies. The enormous wooden box, ravaged by age, renewed the Panaceans' vigor. They campaigned harder than ever for the bishops to come and open the box, but ultimately, they never succeeded. It took almost 50 more years, but the Panacea Society finally collapsed. Its last living member, Ruth Klein, died in 2012. A charitable trust was set up after her death, which keeps the history of the movement alive. The location of the fabled box remains a secret to this day. Allegedly, it still rests in the care of people dedicated to Joanna's message. The demise of the Panacea Society represents the final nail in Joanna Southcott's coffin. Beginning as an ordinary domestic servant, Joanna eventually spread her message worldwide and inspired movements that kept her memory alive for centuries. Considering the resilience of her message, it's possible that one day soon we'll see yet another revival of her movement. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode. For more information on Joanna Southcott, amongst the many sources we used, we found Charles Lane's book, The Life of Joanna Southcott, extremely helpful to our research. 
You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Cults was written by Tara Wells with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.